This is the last talk um, in our series, Everyone's Invited, which is all about building church together, being a community together in Jesus. And this session is entitled Restoring Relationships, because relationships are important, aren't they? Hands up here who has never messed up in a relationship in some way. All right, hand down the liars. Uh, yes, we all muck up in our relationships, don't we? We can take offence at people, we can give offence to others, we can cause um, harm unintentionally, or we can say things maliciously. And unfortunately, within church life, that can also be the case as well. And you may be here this morning having also yourself personally been offended by someone in a church or in this church. So I know I'm speaking about a subject that is important to us all and is part of everyday life. So today we're going to look at an incident which is towards the end of Jesus' earthly time on earth. And um, it's a touching story, but it's also got real relevance to us in our individual and our corporate lives. If you're a follower of Jesus here, um, I'd like you to really think about the challenges that this passage um, gives to us in, in terms of how we do life with one another. If you don't know Jesus here, or you're just trying to make sense of God and who he is, then I'd like to use this story to reflect and think about where you stand in terms of your faith or your understanding of Jesus, and whether today you might take that step to meet the risen Jesus yourself. So let's dig into the passage. John chapter 21, if you've got your Bibles. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Galilee. Right, I'm just going to stop there. So afterwards, after what? Well, Jesus is risen. He, he died. Um, he went to the cross. He died. He was buried. He's come back to life again. And afterwards, um, in this passage, Jesus has begun to appear to different believers. He appeared to Mary near the tomb. He's appeared to the disciples in a locked upper room, um, all the disciples bar Thomas. And then he appeared another time uh, when Thomas was present as well. Now, the Sea of Galilee was an area that saw a lot of action. Some of Jesus' most famous miracles were done on or around the Sea of Galilee, the calming of the storm. He fed people with loaves and fishes on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Um, There was the miraculous catch of fish on the waters. And actually, there's no other region in the area that saw as much action or as as amazing things as this, this area, the Sea of Galilee, or sometimes it's called the Sea of Tiberias. Verse 2, Simon Peter... Thomas, known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. So seven believers together. Now in Jewish law, the evidence of seven was seen as the most complete form of evidence in a court of law. So I wonder whether God here is putting seven believers together to witness the risen Jesus and to be able to testify to others about it. Verse 3, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I wonder whether Simon Peter has just gone back to his old ways after having seen Jesus, after having seen miraculous things. Maybe he's gone back to what he knew best, which was just fishing. Maybe he's marking time. I don't know. But certainly their work is fruitless. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. There's something quite amazing about the risen Jesus. And there are a few incidences where disciples, those that knew Jesus really intimately, actually didn't recognize the risen Jesus. Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. 
after the resurrection. And actually there were two, di- two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus. And actually Jesus walked with them for a long time before he opened the scriptures to them and their eyes were opened and they realized it was Jesus. So there's, there's something intriguing about whether the body of the risen Jesus was slightly different. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but there's something amazing about the risen Jesus here. And the disciples certainly don't recognize him straight away. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net onto the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Throw your net over to the other side. Ah, Jesus is starting to give them a clue as to who he is. In fact, the disciples, I'm sure, couldn't fail to remember that other miraculous catch of fish on the same waters when Jesus gave them the same advice again. Throw your net over the other side. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, It's the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. You know, I love Simon Peter. I love the type of character that Simon Peter has. Someone says, oh, it's Jesus. And instead of maybe sedately rowing the boat in sensibly, he kind of chucks his stuff off and jumps into the water. I picture him kind of wading through the water, probably with the disciples rowing the boat at the same speed as him alongside. But there's something in his character which is so attractive. He's a passionate, heart-on-the-sleeve believer, yet Jesus loved him. His behavior here is totally consistent with the guy who, when he saw Jesus walking across the water towards him, said, oh, can I come out onto the water and walk too? And then got freaked out by the wind and the waves. His behavior is consistent with the guy who, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, lashed out his sword and cut off the ear of one of the soldiers. He was sort of impetuous. J.C. Ryle, the Bible commentator, says this, fervent, warm-hearted, impulsive, impetuous, affectionate, Thinking nothing of the consequences, acting on the spur of present feeling, he at once plunges into the sea when he hears that his Lord is on the shore and struggles to get close to him. Whatever we may think of his hasty behaviour, we must all admire his zeal, his love. Zeal for Christ deserves respect, even when it leads a man into hasty action. Enthusiasm, even when it runs to seed, is better than indifference. Peter reminds me of the cartoon character Scrappy-Doo. This kind of dates me a little bit. But if you think about Scrappy-Doo, he's always, when there's a burglar or a ghost or an enemy, he's already first to jump in going, let me at him, let me at him. And actually Uncle Scooby, who's far more sensible, has often got his foot on Scrappy-Doo's tail, holding him back from his kind of impetuosity. J.C. Ryle says again of Peter, John was the first to perceive who it was, but Peter was the first to act. John's loving spirit was the quickest to discern, but Peter's fiery, impulsive nature was the quickest to stir and move. And yet, both were believers. Both were true-hearted disciples. Both loved the Lord in life and were faithful to him unto death, but their natural temperaments were not the same. Isn't it good that we're not all the same? Isn't it good that Jesus loves us, whatever our characters are like, and however we're motivated? Now, the Bible in the book of 1 Corinthians has a picture of a body. The church is like a body, and each one of us has a different part to play. We're not all the same. We're not an amorphous blob. When you become a Christian, you don't, you're not given a number, right, number 271, and you shuffle along, and you're an automaton. God has made you and given you your own character and spirit. It says this. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. 
And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. But God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. We need each other as believers in our difference. My mind goes to Martha and Mary, friends of Jesus. They've got very different characters, haven't they? Very different giftings, very different approaches to life. There's that famous incident where Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching, while Martha is busying herself, and it says she was troubled with many things. And I often feel that Martha gets a rough deal there, because we need practical people, don't we, to, to serve and to do stuff. But actually, later on in John 11, there's another time where Martha's faith shines more brightly than her sister's get to my first point then. Jesus is real. In verse 7, it said they knew it was the Lord. The miracle of fish, maybe, the way that Jesus took the bread and gave it to them, took the fish and gave it to them. Something happened there, and they realized it was their friend Jesus. How about you? Have you been checking out Jesus over this Easter period? Have you looked at the evidence for his death, his burial, his resurrection? Have you had experience of Jesus when you were young? Do you have friends who are Christians, but you've never really done anything about it? The Bible says that there's nobody too far from the reach of God, that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus is not some nice philosophy. He's a person. He meets powerfully and can radically change people's lives. Now, I love reading books, and I love reading testimonies of um, people whose lives have been radically changed by Jesus. Hands up here if you're a fan of the metal band Korn. Okay, tough crowd, but I'm not surprised because they are, they're not really your most savoury act. Okay? But the lead guitarist of the band Korn, Brian Head Welch, um, I read his book over Easter. Let's have the next slide, Tom. It's this book here, Save Me From Myself. And I'm going to read a little extract about someone who met the real risen Jesus in all the mess of his life. Now, Brian was not a Christian as he was growing up. His family weren't Christian. He had a normal kind of upbringing. But he had a school friend whose family were Christian. And he says this when he was young. I didn't know anything about Christians or God or Jesus or anything. My only religious experience was when some priest sprinkled water on my head in an Episcopalian church when I was about three. I didn't know how it all worked. I didn't know what any of this Christian stuff meant and what Kevin and his family were talking about. Still, if all the talk about Jesus made their house a peaceful place for me to hang out, then so be it. Kevin also talked about Jesus when he was at my house. Since we lived close to each other, he'd come over to spend the night and I'd be like, come on, let's watch Friday the 13th or another horror film. And he'd just tell me about Jesus while I was watching Jason hack up a bunch of people. Then came that fatal day when Kevin's mother laid it all out for me. But she explained it all so gently and with so much love that I thought I'd give it a shot. Because here's what I knew. I liked these people. They were nice to me and I felt happy when I was with them. I was unsure if what she had said about Jesus was true. After thinking about it, I decided it was better to be safe than sorry. So just in case, I went ahead and prayed to Jesus. 
I went downstairs in the cramped basement bathroom that always smelt of my dad's shaving cream. Kneeling down on the tile, I said, Jesus, will you please come into my heart? I felt something. I was 13 years old. I didn't know what I was feeling, but I definitely felt something inside me change. Was I supposed to change how I live now? I didn't know what to do, and my knees were getting cold from the tile, so I got up and pretty much went on with my life. I didn't know it at the time, but something had been set in motion in my life, something that I wouldn't experience for 20 years or so. Now, Brian went on to have a really successful music career. He's part of one of the biggest kind of heavy metal bands in um, America. Um, but with that glamorous lifestyle also came a lot of mess. He got addicted to hard drugs. He fathered a child that had to be adopted because he wasn't able to look after it. He fathered another one that he was dysfunctionally bringing up with his broken girlfriend. They were um, totally messed up. He felt suicidal and depressed. And in his low moments, he says this, I was stuck. Just like with drugs... I couldn't bear to quit the band, but I wanted someone or something else to make the decision for me, to take me out. I was addicted to the band, and I was addicted to drugs. Both of them were sucking the life out of me, and I knew I had to quit them both, but I couldn't. In the middle of 2004, I was just saturated with evil and depression. I was doing more speed than you can imagine. I was getting more obsessed with pornography on the internet, turning into more of a sicko than I already was. I had hit rock bottom. And I was in the gutter. Well, God graciously brought a couple of men into his life who were Christians. He was earning so much money that actually he was doing some real estate deals and, and actually putting his money into property. And one of the guys that he uh, dealt with was a Christian. And he kind of, he, he didn't proselytize to him. He just kind of walked with him and listened to him. And Brian slowly says he started to open up to his friend. And he says this. When Eric was done speaking to me, he suggested that I pray and with him and asked Jesus back into my life. I thought, no way. I've been up all night on speed and I'm still high right now. If I pray this prayer while I'm high, I'll get to hell for sure. <laughs> I figured I had to clean myself up and get off drugs before I could even think about talking to God. Eric led me in the prayer and I said it anyway, even though I felt a little bit embarrassed. As I drove home, I started freaking out. I felt like God was going to strike me down or something for praying to him while I was high. When I got home, I went straight to my bedroom, found the Bible Eric had given me, and started talking to God. Well, God graciously helps him in so many ways. He says this, right then and there, my drug addiction began to fall away from me. I started talking to God nonstop. I figured that I had ignored him for so long that I'd better catch up and make up for lost time. I went back to that church a couple of times after that first week. I felt like a new man. I was feeling God touching me inside every day. I would just cry and cry for no other reason than I just felt loved. I wasn't sad at all. I felt total peace. I had done drugs every day for almost two years, and now here I was clean in a couple of weeks. I couldn't believe it. Later that evening, I was sitting at my computer and flipping through the pages of my Bible when I felt a peaceful presence hovering over me. Then I felt something hug me wrapping around me in an embrace. I don't really know how to describe that feeling other than to say it was like someone poured liquid love into my body and all around me. I had chills all over my body. I had never felt anything like that before in my life. I was caught up in total ecstasy. The high was higher than any drug I'd ever done in my life, and I was instantly addicted to it. I looked up and gently said, Father, there was nothing there for me to see, 
but I could sense his presence so strong. It was God. So Brian met powerfully with the risen Jesus. Now your story might not be as dramatic as Brian's, but you could be here this morning having lived years away from Jesus. For me myself, I felt God calling me at a friend's baptism. I was up in a balcony in a church watching my friend saying of how Jesus had changed his life. No one said, do you want to become a Christian at the end of the meeting? No one offered to pray with me. But there and then, I felt Jesus saying, this is for you. You need to follow me. Jesus is real. This morning, you can meet with the risen Jesus powerfully too as well. And at the end of the meeting, please come and chat to me if you do want to pray and get right with Jesus yourself. Let's just get on with the passage. But one thing before we move in, I I said to the youth at Hope Central, isn't it exciting that at that young age of 13, that Christian young person, God used him to impact Brian's life. And Brian, I mean, he reflects on it later and he actually meets up with his friend and tells him that. But actually, we don't know the effect that we have on those around us as well. And God can be powerfully using us as just loving, consistent people in other people's lives. So let's move on with the passage. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. Don't you love the Bible? If it was all made up, you wouldn't put in these kind of little random details like that, would you? It's fantastic. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now we're going to go on to this instance of Jesus graciously restoring Peter after he had mucked up. So we're going to look at this. But one little note I just want to just pick up before we move on. In verse 9, it talks about a fire of burning coals. Now, the only other time that the word for a fire of burning coals is used in the New Testament was when Peter denied Jesus (laughs) around the fire in front of the servant girls, the servants of the high priest. So it's almost now, as we look at this passage, as God is almost rewriting that incident to allow Peter to kind of come to repentance for the things that he's done. So let's look at this. Jesus restores. So we've got the story teed up nicely. God, as an amazing author, has orchestrated these events to unwrite Peter's past mistakes as he forgives and restores him graciously. Jesus shows us here that Simon's past mistakes have not written him off if he repents. Before, Peter had been so confident that he could stand for Jesus. Let's look at what he said. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Now, if you remember, not long after that, it's just around that coal fire, not even in front of some, you know, a, an army of soldiers, but just in front of a servant girl, he denies being a follower of Jesus. And Jesus knew about that. As, as God, Jesus knew that that's what happened. Does he tear Peter off a strip here, though, in front of the others? Does he condemn him and make him feel like a real loser? No. And neither does Jesus do that with us when we muck up. Now, the devil accuses. 
The devil points the finger and says, you're like this and you're a loser and you let this. God never does that. The Bible says that God convicts us of sin, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. There is always hope if we muck up with Jesus. The Bible says love never fails. And in this instance, Jesus' love is showing that it never fails Peter. But what does Jesus do? Does he go, well, it's all chill. Let's move on. Let's crack on with life. Let's see. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, I love the way here that Jesus calls Peter Simon, son of John. If you remember earlier, he, he gives him the name, name Peter. He says, you're going to be the rock on which I'm building the church. And I think if Jesus said that to me, I would be thinking, yeah, bring it on. I'm going to be the rock and build my... And, and actually, maybe Jesus is just putting that to one side and kind of getting, getting to, to deal with Peter and how he's mucked up. And actually, Jesus is still going to build the church on Peter and he is still going to use him and Peter is going to be faithful unto death. But actually, Jesus kind of puts that to one side and lovingly addresses him as Simon, son of John. He asks Peter three times, do you love me? Almost as if to undo those three denials of Peter. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, Peter, I know what you did in the run up to my trial. I know how you betrayed me when I was crucified and I'm ready to overlook and pardon it all. But one thing I must have in my disciples is a sincere and loving heart. I can overlook want of knowledge and want of faith, but I must have love. We're told the third time Peter was hurt. Isn't Jesus pushing it a little bit far, making him say that three times? Well, the grief that Peter felt was meant to do him good. J.C. Ryle says again, We need not doubt that our Lord, like a skillful physician, stirred up this grief intentionally. He intended to prick the apostle's conscience and to teach him a solemn lesson. It was grievous to the disciple to be questioned. How much more grievous must it have been to the master to be denied? Kate and I have been watching um, a series on the BBC about surgeons. Some of you might have seen it. Some amazing operations performed by surgeons, really pushing the boundaries of surgery, mining into tumours that are deep within the brainstem that do amazing things. Um, I was, when I think about physicians and surgeons, I think of my, my cousin, who's a maxiofacial surgeon, and he reconstructs people's heads um, and faces after mouth cancer, for that sort of thing from smoking. And I remember seeing him on embarrassing bodies, banging away at a woman's jaw joint with a hammer and a chisel, and before he, he put a, a new titanium jaw joint on this lady's mouth, she couldn't open it. Um, he didn't look like a skillful physician with a hammer and chisel, but I know that um, that's, it's, it's a very kind of important thing that you need to do when you're operating on bone. But the Lord here acts like a skillful physician. He gets right to the nub of Peter's life. Let's go on to the next point. Jesus recommissions. 
The way that Jesus restores Peter is full of grace. Jesus had every right to shame and point out what Peter had done, all of his failings. But the way he does this is very different from how we would naturally behave. He makes Peter acknowledge his love for Jesus and then recommissions him to go again. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. The Bible says that it is kindness that leads you towards repentance. Jesus here is kind. He's kind and tender towards Peter, yet he is also very loving in pointing this out. Do we really feel the debt that we have been forgiven by Jesus? Does Jesus' death for us prick our consciences? What's the secret of living for and loving Christ? Is it not knowing the weight of that forgiveness, that sense of pardon and, and sort of reconstruction and forgiveness for our sins that we've received from Jesus? J.C. Ryle says this, those love much who feel much forgiven. Hallelujah. Now in the Bible, it uses the word repentance a lot. Now, repentance is more than just feeling sorry for some things that you've done, but it is an active turning your back on those sins and walking in the other direction. Peter's not blown it in Jesus' eyes. Now, when I think about Peter, my thoughts also go to another disciple that let Jesus down, Judas. Now, when Judas let Jesus down, he felt sorrow for what he had done, but he went away and hanged himself. Peter on the, other, on the other hand, I'm sure felt equally as gutted for what he had done. But actually here, he accepts Jesus' tender offer of forgiveness and restoration. He's going again. Hallelujah. If the Holy Spirit, maybe this morning, is speaking to you about times that you have let the Lord down or let other people down, then claim the forgiveness that is ever accessible through the cross this morning. Christ's grace Christ's love for you is here and available this morning to restore you. You're not a loser, Christian. Just come to Jesus. Tell him that you love him and he will do that work of restoration in you. You're a precious member of his church and he loves you. So let's go on to the practical application of this passage. Restoring relationships. Do you know what? The Lord is still in the business of restoring relationships today. This story is a heartwarming one. But there's real application for us. How are we in our relationships with one another? Now, I've, perversely, I find it quite encouraging that in the Bible there are examples of where believers fell out with each other. Even in those years of the early church, even when scriptures are still being written by Paul, there are believers falling out with one another. Here's an example in Philippians. Now, I appeal to Yodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord... Settle your disagreement. So even in those early years after Christ ascending back to heaven, exciting days of the church being built, you'd think, wow, everyone would be on fire. It would be like this sort of spiritual nirvana. It's not like that. There are still believers falling out back in the day. So I want us to have a little think. Sorry, I, I missed a... Um, yeah, go on to the next, next slide, Tom. Thank you. I want us to have a little temperature check this morning. Now, I was looking at this, this picture of all these dials on this plane flight deck, and I was, I was thinking, well, I, I'm quite intimidated by all these dials. I wouldn't know what they do. Yet this person operating these dials 
knows what every single dial does. Now this morning, I want to read us some verses from the Bible, and as, as we look at them, I'd like you to ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak to you and ask you, are any of my dials, my spiritual dials, my one another ring dials with other Christians here, do they need a bit of resetting? Okay, so... Let's have a look. There's a, that common phrase in there, when, when you point the finger, there are three pointing back at you. So actually, when we're thinking about, well, he did that to me, actually, we need to be thinking, well, did, what part did we play in that? Sometimes, in fact, we're more tolerant of those that don't know Jesus yet than we are of our own Christian brothers and sisters. And actually, we sometimes hold people to a higher kind of standard of account, and we're less gracious with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's have a look. Firstly, do you write people off for their past mistakes or do you, hold, um, do you hold things against other people? It says this in Colossians, bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Just think about that. Think about your dial. Do we forgive as we have been forgiven. I, my mind goes to that, you know, that parable of the unmerciful servant. He's forgiven so much debt by the king, and then he holds a debt against someone who owes him a lesser amount. And actually, we who have been forgiven so much by God, are we holding things against others when our debt to him was so enormous? Let's look at another thing, comparison. A comparison drives our society, doesn't it? We are encouraged to compare things, aren't we, all the time? Deals and cars and all that sort of thing. Um, but we also compare ourselves, don't we, with other people. And actually, Peter, even after Jesus lovingly restoring him, he's still comparing himself. Later on in the passage, I haven't got it on the screen, but later on, it says this in verse 20. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who'd leaned back against Jesus at the Last Supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Even after this, Peter is still comparing himself with other believers. When I was looking at this passage, I was reminded of a wonderful bit in The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis. Now, I love the books by C.S. Lewis. And in The Horse and His Boy, there's one bit where Aslan is talking and basically what Aslan is saying is, I'm only interested in your, your, you need to be only interested in your relationship with me. Don't look at other people and what's happening to them. And Aslan says, child, I'm telling you your story, not hers. No one has told any story but their own. And we can so easily look around, can't we, and go, well, why is that person being noticed? Why is that person being given that ministry? Or... Why'd they choose those worship songs? They weren't very scripturally accurate. I could choose some much better songs. And and we've kind of got this, we're looking around, aren't we? Oh, I, I could do that better than that person. We can compare. Well, in Philippians, it says this. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Even as I was preparing this preach, I had to repent I felt God challenging me of an attitude that I had towards another believer because I thought I was better than them or I had a better idea than them. And then as I was going for a bike ride yesterday, I felt God going, well, before you preach that, Jim, you need to ask for forgiveness about that attitude towards that person. That's, that's why I love preaching. It's, uh, it does more in me, I think, than in you guys. So, um, Here's another area, another dial to look at. Are you quarrelsome? Are you quarrelsome? I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, 
and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And again from Timothy, do not have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And lastly, from my favourite book in the Bible, the book of James, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they come, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, we've got a really exciting opportunity, haven't we, as Hope North, to be really building a, a great body of believers together here. So I want to encourage you, as you offend others and others, others offend you, let's take the steps towards that reconciliation. And we're going to go on to looking at in the middle, in a minute. But you know what? We can offend people without even knowing it. I am sure that I wind a lot of people up. And also other people wind me up without them knowing it. And actually, I just want to testify to my shame um, to something in my life. Now, when I came to Winchester as a student, um, there was a lovely, godly guy in the church, really lovely guy. Um, He was bald, totally bald, um, but he was a great follower of Jesus. And um, when he felt the Holy Spirit on him, he would kind of move around and wobble quite a bit sort of thing. And the, the lights would bounce off his bald head. And, and I got irrationally cross with his bald head. And this, of, why is that? Why are you wobbling around the light bouncing off your head? And I mean, he, he didn't know this at all. And I was just irrationally wound up by him. And, and actually, God brought me to the point where he challenged me about it and said, you are, you know, your attitude towards him is really wrong. And actually, God you know, kind of challenged me to pray good things for him, to pray blessings on him. And actually, I can genuinely say, he's not in the church anymore. I can genuinely say that, um, you know, God changed my heart towards that. But that was an attitude that I had, and he didn't even know that he had wound me up. So this morning, one of your dials might be that you're holding things against people, and they've done, they don't even know it. Now, it might not always be right to go, oh, I'm really sorry, you really wound me up with your bald head. and that's a, It might not be right to go and do that. But actually, God might be asking you this morning to come to a place of repentance for an attitude that you have against another believer as well. In church life, we will be let down by other people. And we will let other people down. We've got some baptisms this afternoon. It's really exciting. So, um, so this afternoon, four till five o'clock, we've got some new believers who are being baptised. And one thing at baptisms, it looks exciting, doesn't it? It looks brilliant. It's the start of a new life. But also I know that those people are on that journey with Jesus. And they will realise that actually as we do life together, it's not going to be a bed of roses. We rub up against one another, don't we? Because God does stuff in our lives as we are working together. We're not all perfect, but we follow one who has the power to transform us as we live and grow together. So how do we make steps towards restoring relationships? We need to take the initiative. The Bible leaves no room for us to wait for the other person to approach us. Okay, We must take the first step. Jesus, in this passage, takes the initiative to restore Peter, even though Jesus has done nothing wrong. I've got two scriptures for you just as we finish. Matthew chapter 5 says this, therefore if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. So for us as worshippers, we need to take that initiative in going to be reconciled with other believers. Then on the flip side, it says this. If another believer sins against you, 
go privately and point out the offence. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But you're, if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So whether we are the one offended or whether we are the one we think has offended someone else, actually we need to take that initiative in being reconciled with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So just to finish, worship band, do you want to just come up? I'd like us just to um, finish by just as maybe Tony could just start playing. I'd just like us to stand and we're just going to have a couple of moments and I'm going to read some things out and I'd like you to reflect before God in terms of your walk with Jesus. So let's, let's just stand and respond to God. I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love your church. Lord, we thank you that you gave yourself for your church. Lord, we thank you that you call us as brothers and sisters to serve you alongside one another. Lord, we thank you so much that you're transforming us from one degree of glory into another. You're changing us to become more like Jesus. Lord, we welcome the touch of your Holy Spirit now as we stand here in this place. Lord, we ask, would you speak to us now in this moment about our lives, about how we have been, about how we are to our brothers and sisters? As we stand here, there might be, God might be speaking to you about needing to go and make things right with someone. It might be that you need to sit down and write an email to someone. It might be that you need to actually go and have a conversation with someone. It might be that we need to repent of an attitude towards someone. We may need to go and say sorry. We may need to forgive. Or we may need to ask for forgiveness. We may have said or done or not said or not done things which have hurt others. If others have hurt us, then we need to lay those things down at the foot of the cross and choose to forgive those people. Don't let pride or saving face stop you from growing in your relationships with other believers. Jesus is recommissioning us too. Like with Peter, he deals gently with our past failures, but he commands us to trust in his resurrection victory and to go on, to go and live for him, expecting to see great success as we follow him together. Let's respond in worship.